denizens of the night. Welcome to another episode of the macabre, the terrifying. Broadcasting live from an insecure bunker in the back of a diner, I will be your guide through the witching hours. Tonight, we'll go ahead and end the world. Yes, I know. I've been getting requests to go ahead and pull the plug while we're ahead for years and years. But don't get too excited. We have to start small. Our scene fades in from black over a picturesque town in the mountains. Oh, what could go wrong? Things are so slow here that everyone in town is discussing an upcoming emergency broadcast system test like it's big news. And maybe it's bigger news than they think. This story is called The Emergency Broadcast Test Did Something to the People in My Town and was written by J.L. Goodwin, 1990. If anyone ends up reading this, then it means I was successfully able to post it without it being taken down. Every other website and forum I've tried writing on has resulted in the same error notification being displayed, whether on a laptop or a smartphone. I can only assume it's something that the people in charge of whatever this is, have done in order to prevent anyone left from getting word out about what's happened here. Some kind of jamming device or scrambler. But for whatever reason, this site still remains accessible, and so I'm posting this here, in a place that I don't think they'll ever check. Because someone needs to know the truth. I'm pretty sure everyone knows about the test of the emergency broadcast system that happened earlier today. It was all over the internet and on the news yesterday. According to the smiling anchorman on our local channel, it would happen around 12.20 in the afternoon and last for about half an hour, broadcasting on television, radio, and to every cell phone turned on at that time. The town I live in whose name I don't dare write in case anyone monitoring the internet is using a trolling program, searching for specific names or phrases, only has a population of about 1,500 people. Because it's such a small and tight-knit community, conversations about the announcement began spreading like wildfire. Didn't they already do a test of the system less than three years ago? Old Mrs. Kravitz asked the cashier at the grocery store while I stood in line behind her with a frozen pizza in my hands. I think I read something about how they're required to perform the test every three or four years, Lorna, she replied as she patiently waited for the elderly woman to finish writing out a check for her purchases. Later that night, after my parents had gone to bed, as I gorged myself on the remaining slices of pizza and watched reruns of I Love Lucy, I got a text from my friend Aubrey. If I have to hear about this stupid test one more time, I think I'll scream, it said. I let out a small chuckle and typed back, Yeah, you'd think with all the commotion over town that we're about to end up in a 21st century version of the Cuban Missile Crisis or something. 
After a few minutes, my phone vibrated in reply. Ha! <laughs> no joke! I was going to ask if you wanted to do some skateboarding tomorrow. We probably don't have much time left until the snow begins to fall. Hell yes, I muttered quietly to myself, then typed out a reply. I am absolutely down for that. I'll meet you in the parking lot of the diner at around 11.45. I hit send, then a thought occurred to me. I sent a quick second text before she could respond. I'm going to turn my phone off tonight and leave it at home. I don't want to have to deal with that annoying tone going off. I took a sip of coke and felt my eyes begin to droop. Sleep was calling my name. My phone buzzed. Good idea. I'll do the same. Gonna hit the sack. Catch you tomorrow. After bidding her good night as well, I held down the power button on the phone, the Samsung logo briefly showing before going to black. I reached for the remote and shut the TV off, dumping my dishes into the sink before heading downstairs. Tossing the powered down phone onto my desk, I set my alarm clock for 10 before climbing into bed and quickly falling into a deep and dreamless sleep. In retrospect, turning off our phones and leaving them at home is probably what ended up saving our lives at least sparing us that horrible initial fate anyways. In the morning, I quickly told my parents where I was heading, and after promising them I'd be safe, I grabbed my skateboard, house keys, and jacket and headed out the front door. The chilly fall air smacked me in the face as I let gravity pull me down the residential streets towards downtown. Behind me, the rocky mountains rose imposingly up into the sky, seeming like the turrets of a castle fortress. There's been a rumor going for close to 40-plus years that horror writer Dean Kuntz once visited here in the late 70s and ended up basing the fictional town of Snowfield on it for his novel Phantoms. I think it's a load of bullshit, though I can't deny that our town looks very similar to what the book describes, so... Who knows? Looking left and right to watch out for any cars or trucks, I entered the town proper and made a beeline for the diner. Aubrey was leaning against the steps, which led to the front door. You're five minutes late, you know, she said jokingly, checking the watch on her wrist. If I'd waited any longer, I would have had to organize a search party. I rolled my eyes at the lame joke and chuckled. Bite me, I retorted good-naturedly, causing her to let out a laugh. No thanks. I don't think I'd like the taste of you. This time, a full-blown laugh burst out of me, which set her off more. After a few seconds, we got control of ourselves again and straightened up. So, where do you want to go skate? She asked me. I thought for a second, looking around. The diner was packed with patrons having either lunch or a late breakfast, and the parking lot full of cars and trucks. Too risky to shred here. An idea came to me, and I snapped my fingers. The old blockbuster! It's got plenty of railings to grind, and we can kickflip over the parking lot bumps. Plus, since it's in the back of town, Sheriff Wake likely won't find us and force us to move. Aubrey rolled her eyes at the mention of the sheriff. 
The man had a major stick up his ass and seemingly hated anyone skateboarding, or, as he called it, creating a nuisance. Aubrey shrugged. Sure, why not? Our plan set. We tucked our boards under our arms and walked through town towards the abandoned building, which once housed the only video rental store in town. It took less than five minutes to reach it. The sign still stood at the entrance, the yellow letters long since having faded in the sun. I checked my own watch as Aubrey dropped her board to the ground and pushed off. 12.05. The test was supposed to start in about 15 minutes. I shook my head, again glad we decided to ditch our phones for the day. For a brief moment, I remembered I'd forgotten to tell my folks I'd done so, and a small swath of guilt washed over me at the possibility they may end up worried if they tried to get a hold of me. But I pushed it out of my mind. I'd apologize when I got home. I dropped my own board to the ground and pushed off. For the next 10 to 12 minutes, the two of us whooped and laughed as we jumped and grinded our way across the parking lot. All the stress of having graduated and needing to pick a college to go to fell away from my mind, and I felt what I can only describe as peace. That peace was shattered by the sounds of tires screeching and steel and glass smashing against each other, reverberating off the buildings and seemingly off the mountains above us themselves. I'd been in the middle of grinding the entrance railing when it came, and it startled me so badly that I lost my balance, the board shooting out from under my feet as my hip smashed into the railing and I fell back to earth. I lay there for a moment, searing pain shooting through me before I felt a hand on my shoulder. Damn, that was a nasty fall, Aubrey exclaimed. Are you all right? After deciding I hadn't broken any bones, I answered, Yeah, I think so. Ugh, stings like a bitch, though. I looked up at her. What the hell was that sound? I asked. She shook her head, a similar confused expression on her face. I don't know. It sounded like it came from back towards the main road. She looked around, then back at me. I think it was a car crash. My thoughts exactly, I muttered pulling myself into a sitting position. Helping me to my feet, she motioned towards where the sound had come from. You want to go see? She asked. After a moment's hesitation, I nodded. Tucking our boards back under our arms, we both hurried towards the road. Rounding the corner, we both immediately spied the devastation a few hundred feet ahead of us. Holy crap, Aubrey breathed out. The intersection of Chestnut and Main Street looked like the aftermath of a destruction derby. Two cars had collided almost head-on with one another. What looked like a late 80s or early 90s Buick LeSabre and a brand new Cadillac Escalade. With a sense of numbness surging through me, I realized I recognized both vehicles. The Cadillac belonged to Mr. Schultz, a rather wealthy but friendly man who rented out most of the houses he owned in town to the ski tourists that came to town every winter. The Buick belonged to Mrs. Kravitz, 
the old woman who I'd stood behind in the store yesterday. Smoke billowed out from both wrecks, and shattered glass and twists of metal littered the street around them for hundreds of feet. Oh my God, I said softly, echoing my friend's sentiments. We both exchanged a glance with each other and then began running towards the accident. As we ran, a small part of the back of my mind noticed something which was small but poignant. I don't see anyone else running out of the buildings. Everyone in town had to have heard it. Where are they? The train of thought was ripped away from me as we both skidded to a stop at the sight of the driver's door of the Cadillac being kicked open. An ear-piercing sound burst out of the SUV's interior, and I dropped my board and clapped my hands over my ears. From the corner of my eye, I saw Aubrey do the same, squeezing her eyes shut in pain and stumbling back into the side of the brick building next to us. Even through my hands, I could still hear the sound, though it was now slightly muffled. For a second, I couldn't place it, and then it hit me. It was the loud, honking siren of the emergency alert system. But it sounded wrong. It was as if the tones had been warped and distorted into something else, and by the sound of it, Mr. Schultz had been listening to his car radio at full volume when they'd gone off. Speaking of which, a figure stumbled out from the SUV, grabbing onto the open door for support. Holy hell in a handbasket, Mr. Schultz survived that, I thought. I swung my gaze over to the Buick. Squinting through the spiderweb of cracks that had become the windshield, I saw a small hint of movement. Then I saw Mrs. Kravitz lean back in her seat. She must have gashed her head open pretty badly because her forehead was covered in blood. Keeping my hands over my ears to dull the still shrieking tone, I turned and got as close to Aubrey as I could so she could hear me through her hands and over the noise. We've got to try and help them! I shouted as loud as I could. I could tell she understood me as she nodded after a second. Then she looked back towards the wreck, and a look flashed across her face. A look I can still remember perfectly. First, confusion, and then a clear expression of renewed horror. I felt a shiver shoot up my spine and spun back around to look at what she'd seen. I truly wish I hadn't. Mr. Schultz was no longer next to his car. Instead, he'd ran around to the driver's side of the Buick. For a split second, I thought it was to help her, until the screaming began. I didn't realize that an elderly woman could scream so high and shrill. The busted windshield prevented me from seeing exactly what Mr. Schultz was doing to Mrs. Kravitz, but it didn't prevent me from seeing the sudden fountain of blood which spurted out and coated the inside of the glass like paint. The sight shocked me so much that I took my hands away from my ears to clamp them over my mouth to keep from screaming. It was then that I noticed that the tone had stopped screeching, 
and silence had again settled over the town. But only for a few seconds. The sounds that sprang up, seemingly all over town, were almost somehow worse than the tone. They were the sounds of screaming. Yells and shrieks came from every conceivable direction. What I can only assume is what the depths of hell itself sound like. It was as if everyone in town were being brutally murdered at the exact same time. Almost as if it were a trigger, Mr. Schultz snapped his head up from where he'd been leaning into the car, and I saw that his eyes had gone completely red. It was as if all the capillaries in his eyes had burst. He reached back into the car and pulled something out. With a sickening churn of my stomach, I saw it was a sharp shard of broken glass, one edge dripping still fresh blood from it. Without even looking in our direction, he took off back towards the heart of downtown in a sprint, almost in the manner of a child rushing to join the frolicking and fun of his friends at an amusement park. For a few moments, neither one of us said anything, simply standing there in dumbstruck horror like deer in the headlights. Finally, Aubrey spoke up, her voice shaky. What the absolute hell just happened? She managed to get out. I could only shake my head. The cries of terror and what almost sounded like rage still coming from around the corner. She spoke again. He... He killed her. Mrs. Kravitz. He butchered her like a cow in a slaughterhouse. Eddie... What the hell? Her voice rose into a scream as she finished. I turned and clamped a hand over her mouth, afraid that her shriek would bring Mr. Schultz back to us. I put a finger to my lips, and after a second, she nodded. Pulling my hand away, she spoke softer. Eddie, what the hell is happening? I shook my head, finally managing to find my voice. I, I, I don't know. She looked back towards the main road. We need to get back home now. I nodded. Agreed. But we can't blindly run out onto the main road. Not with... I gestured towards the hellish sounds coming from the direction we needed to go. Whatever the hell is going on? A look of realization crossed her face. The alleyways! She exclaimed, causing me to remember the maze of alleys that crisscrossed between the main street buildings. All right. But first, let's see what exactly the hell is going on. She hesitated, but nodded. Motioning to be quiet, I led the way to the corner of the building on one side of the intersection. Just let me look around the corner quickly, I whispered. Again, she nodded silently. Taking a deep breath, I peered around the corner onto the main street. If I hadn't already been in shock... I don't think I would have been able to keep from screaming at the grisly sight that awaited me. It was like a scene out of a horror movie. People were dashing around, from building to building, clutching all sorts of things. Crutches, 
kitchen knives. There was even one man wielding what looked like an old sword which had hung inside the antique shop. That wasn't the horrifying sight. There were dozens of bodies littering Main Street. It seemed people had dashed out of everywhere. The diner, grocery, and hardware store, and more. Blood pooled around their still forms. Still others, some holding their arms or stomachs to stop the bleeding, were attempting to run away from those wielding weapons. They didn't make it very far, though, as they were overwhelmed by the others. They all shouted and screamed in what sounded like a total and complete rage as they chased them down. Oh my God, was all I could whisper out. I pulled my head back, and the look on my face must have told Aubrey all she needed to know. Her face had gone pale as a sheet. That bad? she asked. I just nodded. I could see the cogs turning in her head. Okay, we stick to the plan. We use the alleys, get through downtown, and back to our houses. I felt a wave of gratitude pass over me. She was managing to hold her composure better than I could have hoped for. I nodded, and following her, we slipped into the gloomy shade of the alley that ran behind the buildings on the right side of the street. We made our way carefully through them, making sure not to attract any attention from the hell still erupting on the main drag. But we saw little glimpses every time we reached a T-junction. We both saw people we'd known all our lives inflicting violence upon each other so shocking and vile I can't bring myself to write it down. I would lose what little sanity remains in my head if I did. We made it to the back parking lot of the diner we'd initially met up in and stopped to wait. The sound of gunshots blasting out caused us both to freeze and duck back into the alley to hide. And not a moment too soon either, because we saw the sheriff's Ford Explorer fly down the road. Sheriff Wake was leaning out of the window, using one hand to steer while firing his pistol with the other. I only saw his face for a moment, but it was enough to see the same crazed look there as the others had. The sound of the roaring engine faded, along with the gunshots after a few seconds, but we could still hear the screeching tires echoing over all the other chaos. Aubrey turned to look at me, an almost hopeless look on her face. Eddie, what the hell do we do? she asked weakly. I knelt and thought, hard and fast. We can't stay outside much longer. We stay out here, we're dead. We need to find shelter, at least for a little while. I spoke. We need to find a place to lie low for a little while until we can make it safely back to the other side of town. Her face turned into a mask of panic. But what about our parents? I felt a knot tie itself in my stomach. The thought of my mom and dad caught up in this hell without a way to get a hold of me, threatening to overwhelm me. But I kept as level ahead as I could. We're not going to be able to help them if we both end up like the others, I said as calmly as possible. 
There's too many people all over the place to avoid all the way back. We need to find some place not many people would have been at and hunker down until we think it's safe enough to keep going. She looked like she wanted to argue, but nodded after a few moments. Then she looked at me. The library, she said simply. Not many people besides the adults go there anymore. It's right on the other side of this building. She pointed at the brick apartments that made up the far side of the alley. I nodded. Okay, let's wait a second, then go. She nodded, and after not seeing anyone for a minute, we began moving from car to car in the parking lot, using them as cover to reach the street. I looked towards the diner. The inside of the windows I could see were splashed in blood, evidence of the slaughter that must have taken place inside. I also noticed, with a vague air of surprise, that the ground in the diner's parking lot seemed to be littered with smartphones. The screens from many were still lit up, and as I stepped over one, I glanced down to see the notice flashing up at me. Test alert. This is a test of the National Wireless Emergency Alert System. No action is needed. As I read it, a sound snapped my head up. It was the sound of static from a radio coming from a few cars up. Sharing a look of panic with Aubrey and convinced the sound would draw unwanted attention our way, we hurried down the line towards the sound. It was coming from a red YJ Wrangler, one which I recognized belonged to Mr. and Mrs. Nolte, two survivalists who lived farther up in the mountains but came down into town to buy supplies and sometimes eat at the diner. Scrambling to the passenger door, I yanked on the handle, praying for it to be unlocked. The door mercifully opened, and with a last look around, I practically flew into the passenger seat. The crackling sound was coming from an old CB radio mounted under the dash, and I reached out to shut it off. That was when the crackling static changed to the smooth sound of a man's voice. Sir, all entrance and exits to the town have been cordoned off and sentries placed to make sure no one enters or leaves. The satellite feed should be up in about 30 minutes, and the jammer will be up in 10. Another man's voice answered him, this one deep and authoritative. Very good, deacons. RF Ultra Phase 1 is now a go. Maintain radio silence for the next 12 hours. The first voice spoke again. Roger that, sir. Over and out. And with that, the radio died, now not even belting out static. I shot a look out the open door at Aubrey, who gave me a similar look of shock and confusion. Was this happening intentionally? Did someone cause this? I didn't stop to wonder beyond that, though. Climbing back out of the jeep, I softly closed the door and motioned for her to keep moving, making sure that nobody was near us. We stayed hunched over and made a mad dash for the library. That's where we've been ever since. We got inside and barricaded the front door with some benches which were inside the foyer. Aside from, to our horror, the body of Mrs. Thatch, the librarian, 
it was thankfully empty. I went and found an old drop cloth in a closet and draped it over her. I couldn't stand to see what someone had done to the back of her skull with what looked like a pipe or wrench. The sounds of our fellow townsfolk slaughtering each other barely let up for the last few hours, but as the sun began to set, it slowly turned silent. I don't know whether that's because the carnage has stopped for now, or everyone who hasn't gone insane is dead. I don't dare think about that, though. The idea that my parents, as well as Aubrey's, along with all our friends, are either lying in a pool of blood somewhere or slinking through the shadows looking for us is too much to bear. We still hear the roar of the sheriff's cruiser roaming around downtown, though. After some thought, and with night coming fast, we've decided to stay here for the night. In the morning, if it's safe, we'll take down our barricade and try and make it back to the residential side of town. In the meantime, I tried both the landline telephone and the computers connected to the internet. Neither one of them worked. The only thing that did, which I'm using to type this now, is a laptop that seems to have a satellite connection. Whoever those people are, they must not have thought anyone in town had a satellite link-up. It's still spotty, as I said at the start, though. No social media sites such as Facebook or Twitter load, and neither does YouTube. Email doesn't work. But, for whatever reason, Reddit seems to. And so, in the darkness of the library's break room, I type this out. I pray to God that it successfully posts and that someone will see it. If you do, please tell me what Aubrey and I should do. Anything that might help us survive. I'll check it in the morning before we head out. If you have any idea what those men on the radio were talking about, about whatever RF Ultra is, please tell me. Because I can't understand what's happening or why. And if they haven't blocked access entirely, I'll try and make another post tomorrow to let you know we're still alive. For now, I need to try and get some sleep. If that's even possible. If I don't post, you'll know we didn't make it. Well, we're still alive. For now, anyways... It still seems as though my small porthole to the outside world hasn't been discovered yet, and happily the satellite connection this laptop has seems to be usable anywhere in town. The fact that people were able to see it is a blessing in itself. First off, I just want to thank everyone who tried to give Aubrey and me advice. We took a good number of the things you suggested to heart, and in a few cases it actually ended up saving our lives. While we couldn't move Mrs. Thatch's body outside last night, and though I don't think I'm dealing with something that'll bring the dead back to life, I did pull her into a storage closet and lock the door from the outside, just to be safe. I didn't dare ask Aubrey to help. She looked as though she was going to throw up just at the sight of me dragging her away. I also grabbed a set of keys off the desk, and am keeping them to use the library as a fallback shelter if we need to. 
The idea that our own government could be responsible for this, though? It's almost too much for my mind to comprehend. How, in this day and age, could they get away with something like this? Wiping an entire town, small or not, off the map? I mean, I've heard about MK Ultra from my father, who used to teach history at the local high school, and it, it seems to make sense that since the man on the radio called this RF Ultra, it might be related. But that was in the 1950s and 60s, over half a century ago. I don't know. I just can't think about that right now. Anyway, I should tell you what happened today. I didn't really get much sleep last night. Every couple of hours, I'd hear what sounded like scratching on the front door of the library, and I'd lay on one of the break room's couches, my eyes wide open and staring at the ceiling, praying that whoever it was, they wouldn't find a way in. I heard two more people scream as well. It means that there are at least some sane people left in hiding, though how many more of them are left, I don't know. I woke Aubrey up as the sun began to rise over the town. For a moment, a peaceful look crossed her face as she looked up at me. Then it was wiped away as she fully woke up, remembering where we were and the hellish situation we were in. She sighed and put her head in her hands. I hoped to God that it was nothing more than a nightmare I had, she said softly. I sat down beside her, pulling her into my arms and giving her a hug. I wish that it was, too, I confessed. After we were both fully awake, we checked the library for food and supplies. In the gathering dark last night, we hadn't been able to scout out much, but thankfully there were a couple of vending machines in the entrance hall of the library. One of the keys on the ring unlocked them, and we were able to pull out some bottles of water and candy bars for breakfast. As we ate and the sun rose higher in the sky, we spoke about what to do. I gently broached the subject, as one of you had suggested of us simply hiding out in the library for a few days to be safe, but she immediately shot it down. Eddie, I'm not leaving my parents out there. She cut herself off, looking down at the ground before finishing. I need to know if they're okay or not. I sighed. As much as I knew it may be foolish, I, too, wanted to know if my parents were alive, dead, or worse. Okay, we'll go look, but we're not splitting up. We'll go check your house first, and after, we'll head uphill to mine. I looked around. We can't go out there unarmed, though. We need something to defend ourselves. After a few minutes searching, we found a paper cutter in the back office, which, after unscrewing a bolt, gave us a very formidable weapon. Aubrey also found a silver letter opener, which she slid into the front pocket of her jeans. Now armed, and sliding the laptop I used into a carrying case and slinging it over my shoulder, the two of us moved to the barricaded front door and, as quietly as we could, pulled the benches away. I checked my watch. The time read just after 11. Almost 24 hours had passed since this entire insanity began, and yet it felt more like an eternity. 
You ready? I whispered. Aubrey nodded, and with a final deep breath, she reached up and slowly turned the brass doorknob. The sun streamed through the open doorway, blinding us for a moment. I blinked my eyes rapidly to get them to adjust. Aside from an overturned trash can across the street, it was not only deserted, but could easily have passed for any normal day. But that was a deadly, deceptive appearance. Moving quickly, we stepped out onto the steps and locked the library doors behind us. Sliding the keys into my jacket pocket, I motioned for her to stay low and pointed across the street to where the alley continued. We'd have to traverse another two or three blocks before the road began to slope back up to the houses, condominiums, and at the very top, the bottom of the ski lifts. Sure that nobody was near us, we dashed for the alley. Slipping into the darkened shadows, we caught our breath for a second. Well, we've made it fifty feet out of the building without being swarmed or even spotted yet. I half hoped that the affected, which is what I'd begun to think of them as in order to try and mentally detach myself in order to not break down, had ended up turning on each other when no more victims were easily reachable. Keeping that hope in mind, I led the way through the first alley. As we reached a T-junction, something dripped onto the back of my neck. Reaching my hand back, I pulled away to see my fingers had turned crimson. I froze, then swallowed hard and looked up. The building the alley ran between had the hardware store and flower shop to our left and a storage warehouse on the right. We stood underneath stairs for the fire escape, which went up to a third-story window, where someone lay halfway out of it, face down on the metal landing. Good God. I couldn't tell who it was. They were too high above me, but I knew they were dead. I could see their eyes, staring wide open but unseeing through the grating. Aubrey, whatever you do, do not look up, I whispered. In any other situation, she would have given me some smart-ass remark about how she hadn't planned to in the first place. But she didn't. She just stared straight ahead and nodded. We continued on until we reached the end of the alley where we'd need to cross another street to reach the next. The sound of smashing glass and clanging came from around the corner. My heart stopped, and my throat went dry as cotton. Oh no. The sound of footsteps rapidly approached the alleyway, and I realized there were too many for us to take on, even armed. I felt Aubrey tug at my shoulder and turned to see her motioning to the space underneath a dumpster next to us. Under there! Hide! She hissed. I didn't dare hesitate. I dropped to my hands and knees and slid into the narrow and disgusting space, making sure to pull the paper cutter blade under with me. Aubrey rolled under and scooted next to me. Not a moment too soon, either. We couldn't see any more of them than their feet and legs from where we were, but I counted at least ten or fifteen of them, all walking in a group. They didn't speak a word to each other, 
though a few seemed to mumble incoherently from time to time. They passed by our hiding spot, thankfully not seeming to take any notice of us. One thing made me feel like I was going to vomit, however. One of them had been dragging something behind them. Or, I should say, someone. Someone I knew. It was Jeff Bailey, one of the star running backs from the high school football team. His arms skittered along the ground behind him, his class ring pinging off the asphalt from time to time. An arrow stuck out from his head. Someone had shot him with a bow. I felt a small tremor beside me and turned my head to see Aubrey silently crying at the sight. Jeff had been a decent guy. We waited for a few minutes to make sure they wouldn't come back, and so Aubrey could compose herself, then scooted out from our hiding spot. Brushing off the dirt and debris stuck to my jacket pants, I cautiously approached the alley entrance. I didn't see hide nor hair of the passing group, and they must have turned onto the main road. I jerked my head to signal Aubrey to follow me. Together, we silently ran across the street. There was only a single block left before the houses began. We made our way past the back entrances to the bakery and post office. That was when I froze, seeing the symbol on the half-open back door to my right. The Sheriff's Department. I knew we needed to keep moving. Waiting too long out in the open, even in the alley, was a chance we could be spotted. But the idea of being able to get a gun was appealing. After all, the blade and letter opener may help us against one or two of the affected, but if we were spotted by a group like the one we saw a minute ago, we were screwed and tattooed. My decision was made. Motioning for Aubrey to come over, I slowly pulled the half-open door back, looking inside. The back room was covered in shadows, making it hard to see anything. Eddie, what are you doing? I heard Aubrey whisper behind me. I put a finger to my lips, and she mercifully fell silent again. There didn't appear to be anyone in the room. Beckoning to her, I slid inside. After a hesitant moment, she followed me. We found ourselves inside the records room. Tall filing cabinets rose up on either side of us, leading to a single door on the left, which led out to the main office. At the other end of the room was a door. The white lettering read, Armory, keep locked at all times. Moving quickly towards it, I tried the handle. It wouldn't budge at all. I swore under my breath. Great, and I'm pretty sure I know who has the keys, too. Heading back the other way, I reached for the handle of the door to the office. This one turned, and I slowly opened it. A single flickering fluorescent bulb lit overhead. Ahead, though, I could see sunlight streaming through another open door. The two of us moved through the dimly lit room, which I could see housed the two jail cells that mercifully appeared to be empty and approached the open door. Taking a deep breath, I stuck just the top of my head around the corner. A pair of eyes almost level with mine nearly caused my heart to stop. I scrambled back in a panic, 
falling over my own legs and onto the carpeted floor. Aubrey looked terrified. What? What? She hissed. Not answering her, I flew back to my feet, picking up the paper cutter arm and raising it over my head. I was sure the affected those eyes belonged to would rush into the room at any moment. The tension in the air was so thick you could have cut it with a knife. But nobody appeared in the doorway. After a few minutes, I lowered the blade and again moved towards the door, this time with Aubrey literally peering over my shoulder. Together, we looked around the doorframe. Oh my god, she moaned out weakly as we spied who the eyes had belonged to and turned away, sounding like she was about to throw up the candy and water we'd had earlier. It was the sheriff's deputy, Deputy Thorne. Unlike Sheriff Wake, he hadn't been a giant pain in the ass and seemed to try and cut the kids and teenagers in town a break whenever they would get into trouble. It had been thanks to him that I avoided juvie a few years ago when I'd been caught graffitiing the back of the high school as part of a dare. I'd actually liked him. Unfortunately, it looked as though he'd been the first victim of the sheriff. His eyes were wide and glassy, his mouth wrenched open in a silent scream of horror as he sat slouched in a swivel chair behind his desk. What looked like a large hunting knife stuck out of his stomach, and it looked as though he'd been stabbed a hell of a lot. I swallowed, closing my eyes and still seeing the horrible image imprinted on the back of my eyelids. Forcing them open again, I whispered a silent prayer for the man, then looked closer. My eyes drifted down to the deputy's service belt, hoping and wishing I'd find what I... Yes! I softly exclaimed to myself. The deputy's pistol still sat in its holster. Taking a deep breath, I gently sat the paper cutter blade down and moved over to him. I reached out, Overcome with a sudden irrational fear that the very dead man would snap to life and reach out to grab my arm. But he happily never moved. Unbuttoning the holster, I slid the pistol out and checked it. It was still fully loaded. I checked the extra pockets of the belt and came up with two extra magazines for the gun. Now we have a much better chance of surviving this. At least for a little while longer. The sound of tires screeching snapped me out of my thoughts. It had come from outside the front of the station, beyond the double glass doors. A hand fell across my shoulder, and I nearly had a second heart attack, spinning around to see Aubrey's panicked face inches from mine. We need to go right now! I didn't argue. Tucking the pistol into the waistband of my jeans and picking up the blade, I followed her rapidly back through the cell room and into the filing room. Behind us, I heard the sound of screeching tires again, followed by the sound of a car door opening and slamming shut. Oh no, it's the sheriff! I quickly closed the door to the filing room shut, then fled out into the alley behind Aubrey, pulling that door shut as well. With it securely closed, we crouched down behind some garbage cans and waited. There was silence for a time, 
and then the pounding sound of footsteps came from behind the closed door. Keys jangled, and the sound of a door being unlocked could be heard. Oh, hell, I know where he's going, I thought, but this was also our chance to make a break for it. Come on, we need to go while we can, I whispered to her, then moved as quickly and quietly as I could towards the final alley entrance. Beyond it, I could see the first row of houses that signaled the change from downtown to the residential district. Stopping at the corner, I risked a glance around. To the right, I could see the sheriff's explorer parked haphazardly in front of the station. The driver's door hung open, and the motor still rumbled quietly in the still air. To the left, the street appeared to be deserted. I saw the body of a middle-aged woman I couldn't recognize lying in the middle of the street, bags of spilled groceries sprawled on the ground next to her. The way ahead to the first house was clear. Okay, we're going to run across the street to that first house there, I said, pointing at the single-story ranch house. Aubrey squinted. You mean the Damones? she asked. I looked again, spying the name on the mailbox. Yeah, the Damones. We're going to try and stick to the backyards and sides of the houses, using them as cover. Your house is only another two and a half blocks away. We don't stop for anything. We just head straight there. Sound like a plan? She looked at me, biting her lip before nodding. Yeah, a plan, she said simply. I could tell she was thinking about her parents. Mr. and Mrs. Carmody were both decent, hard-working people who I liked as much as I liked Aubrey. I hoped that, somehow, they were still alive. But this wasn't the time to think about that. Okay, on the count of three, we make a break for it, I said. I held up three fingers, then slowly lowered them one by one. The second the last finger dropped, the two of us began sprinting across the last slab of black pavement that separated us from the sanctuary of the houses. That was when someone else came sprinting around the corner to our right. My eye was drawn to the sudden explosion of movement, and I caught a glimpse of a disheveled man running towards us. For a split second, my heart stopped and my free hand reached back for the pistol in my waistband, fearing he was one of them. But then I saw the terrified expression plastered on his face and realized he was normal, like us. I also recognized him. His name was Maurice, and he'd been the town drunk for as long as I'd been alive. He was clearly sober now, though, and I saw his eyes lock on mine. I'd begun to raise my fingers to my lips to motion him to be quiet when he started shouting at us. Help me! Please, you two! Help me! He screamed. I could see blood trailing behind him from a wound in his shoulder. The sound of his voice was like a baseball through a plate glass window in how it shattered the tension-filled silence, echoing off of everything. No! Every one of the affected are going to hear him. I spun around to Aubrey. Run for the Damone's house, I exclaimed. 
We turned and sprinted for the steps leading up to the front lawn as fast as our legs could carry us. Taking them two at a time, I heard Maurice scream out behind us. Wait! Please don't go! Help me! My heart wrenched in my chest at the man's pleading. I wanted so desperately to turn around and motion for him to follow us, but I knew that his voice would be attracting the attention of everyone we didn't want this way. And so, I yanked on Aubrey's arm, practically tearing her up the last few steps. Staying outside was no longer an option. We needed a place to get out of sight. I spied an open front window which led to the Damone's kitchen. The white curtains slowly billowed outside in the breeze. Inside, I ordered, and still hearing Maurice cry out behind us, I powered my way to the window. I turned and almost flung Aubrey through it, then hauled myself in after her. Reaching up, I pulled the window almost completely shut, but not quite, just enough to still hear what was happening. Maurice was crying for us to come back outside and save him. Then it suddenly cut off. Feeling a knot tie itself in my stomach, I moved back to the window, setting down the blade and pulling the pistol from my waistband. Flicking off the safety, I held it in one sweaty hand and peered over the edge of the window. Maurice had stopped just before the bottom of the steps leading up to our hiding spot. He had turned around, facing back towards the other side of the street, where the sheriff now stood, half in and half out of the open door of the sheriff's office. In his hands was a long, black shape. I quickly recognized it as the department's sole AR-15 rifle. My heart fluttered in my chest. Against that, the pistol in my hands was practically an AMP shooter. For a few moments, the scene in the street stayed frozen, as if someone had hit pause on a movie. Then, I saw the crazed look on the sheriff's face intensify, his lips curling back into a snarl. Maurice let out a shrill scream and turned, beginning to run down the street towards the opposite end. For a man who drank himself into a blackout every night, he was fast but not nearly fast enough. I saw the sheriff move quickly to the hood of his cruiser. Using the hood as a stabilizer, he aimed the rifle at the retreating man's back. Not even a second later, the stabbing sound of a gunshot rang out. I heard Maurice let out a yelp and swung my gaze back to him. He'd fallen to the ground, clutching at his left leg, a small pool of blood was forming around him. I realized with a dull sense of horror that the sheriff had intentionally aimed for a wounding shot instead of a killing one. The reason why became clear a moment later. I heard the sound of a car door slam shut and swung my gaze back to see the cruiser fly backwards, turning to face the man. A moment later, the lights and sirens sprang to life, and I saw a look of horror flow over Maurice's face as he realized what was about to happen. I know I had a similar look on my own face. The tires squealed, and the cruiser leapt forward, accelerating rapidly. I saw it close the distance to Maurice, 
heard him scream out, but I turned away before I could see the impact. I heard it, though. The dull thunk could be heard even over the blare of the siren. I gritted my teeth, then spared a look out the window again. I truly wish I hadn't. The cruiser was reversing back over the now crumpled form of the man. I looked away again, focusing on the other end of the block. There was a group of affected rounding the corner, sprinting towards the carnage unfolding opposite them. I counted at least twenty or thirty. Realizing this was a chance to study them, to see if I could figure out anything by watching them, I stayed crouched by the windowsill. I heard Aubrey whisper something behind me, but I was too focused to hear. The group appeared to be all age ranges. I saw full-grown adults as well as teenagers, and even one or two elderly folks who dragged their walking sticks behind them. What churned my stomach, however, was seeing the kids. There were what looked like three or four of them as young as twelve, sprinting among the group and holding things like knitting needles and knives. Good Lord. Aubrey's hand fell on my shoulder and she spoke again. Now I did focus on what she said. What? I whispered to her. Her eyes were sad and full of sympathy, something I didn't understand. Eddie, turn away, please. Don't look, she said gently. I saw the look in her eyes, and I suddenly felt as though a claw had clenched itself around my heart. She'd seen something in the group I hadn't. She'd seen... No. Oh, God, please, no. I turned, hearing her tell me again not to look, but I didn't listen to her. I couldn't. I gazed back out the window at the now-passing mob. They were close enough that I could see people I knew now. Michael, from our graduating class. Kelly, who I'd had a crush on since freshman year of high school. Mr. Olivier, the kindly Italian man who ran the deli and gave us free sandwiches. So many others. And almost in the middle of the pack stood someone I knew all too well. A tall woman, her platinum blonde hair now dirty and streaked with blood. The entire front of her was streaked with blood, all of which was certainly not hers. Behind the blood-filled eyes, I could barely see the small spots of blue which remained. The lips which had once kissed me goodnight as a child now pulled back in an insane sneer. In her right hand was my father's hunting knife. Its blade looked almost rusted by the amount of blood covering it. My breath came in short, ragged gasps as tears threatened to pour out of my eyes. Mom? The pack of affected, my mother among them, sprinted past the house we hid in, flowing around the sheriff's cruiser like a stream around a rock before stopping. Realizing there was nothing for them to attack, they turned and hurried away, looking for more targets. A moment later, the cruiser peeled out, also disappearing and leaving Maurice's crumpled and shattered body lying in the road. 
I turned away, sliding down onto the vinyl kitchen floor. Tears now flowed freely from my eyes, and I felt my heart shatter inside of my chest. I stayed as quiet as I could, knowing sobbing could bring the horde back our way. But I couldn't stop crying. I felt Aubrey slide down beside me and put her arms around me. For a moment, I attempted to pull away, then folded into her. We huddled like that for a long while. Finally, she pulled back and wiped some of the tears from my eyes. I'm sorry, Eddie, she said softly. I used the sleeve of my jacket to wipe the rest away, trying to get control over myself. I'm so, so sorry. I breathed in deep, letting out a choked breath as images of my mother murdering my father in an insane rage refused to stop replaying in my mind. But I knew I couldn't grieve long. We had to keep moving. I simply nodded at her, finding my voice and praying it sounded as stable as I imagined it. The only thing that matters now is making it to your house and finding your parents. She nodded, then stood up and held out her hand to me. I reached out and took it, allowing her to pull me to my feet. I tucked the pistol back into my waistband, then picked up the paper cutter blade. Let's go then, I said. Together, we moved quietly through the Demones. Thankfully, it seemed they'd been out of the house when everything had gone down, because it was empty. Opening the back door, we slid out into the backyard. Keeping as low of a profile as we could, we began to move from house to house, heading in the direction of Aubrey's. As we darted from street to street, we passed by more bodies, showing that this side of town hadn't been saved from the slaughter. But the numbness settling in me, overseeing my mother as an affected, made me not really care. Even when we passed by a man who'd been run over by his own lawnmower, I simply stared for a moment. Eventually, we made it to Aubrey's house. That's where we are now, as I type this out. When we arrived, we saw that her parents' Chevy Tahoe was not in the driveway. Aubrey said something about how they'd said they needed to go out of town sometime yesterday, but that she didn't know when they left or if they'd come back before everything had happened. I can tell she's hoping that they're still out of town, unable to get back in. It'd be a better fate than others have, though I honestly don't know what the people blocking off the roads into town would do to people from here trying to get back in. We've decided to stay here for the night, with dark coming on fast. It's too dangerous to return to the library, and thankfully, due to Mr. and Mrs. Carmody being, well, shall we say very affluent, they'd built the inside of their house almost like a fortress. All the doors had steel deadbolts, which we all locked, as well as shatterproof glass. We closed all of the curtains, then gathered some food, water, and two sleeping bags from the Carmody's camping closet, and moved into the basement, locking the door behind us. Down here, we found an old ham radio set that Mr. Carmody has as a hobby. Remembering the advice one of you gave me, I turned it on softly, but heard only dead air. 
I've left it on for now, just in case. I'm using this time as I type this out to charge the laptop. The carrying case had a charging cord in it. I've noticed that even less web pages seem to work now without moving to an error page. One thing I did find has me worried, if not downright afraid. A few search engines, such as Bing, still seem to work. But when I randomly decided to type in my town's name, nothing came up. No search results at all. Except for ones asking if I'd meant somewhere else. That's impossible. This place even used to have its own Wikipedia article, however small. But now, it's all gone. It's as if... It's as if all trace of it's being erased from the internet. Is that even possible to do? To wipe an entire town from existence, no matter how small? The radio just crackled a moment ago. I heard that same voice speak over it. Sir, RF Ultra Phase 1 is completed. We've managed to calculate a 78.5% success rate in subjects from the satellite data we've received. Over. The deep voice answered him. Roger that, Deacons. Phase 1 complete. Phase 2 will commence tomorrow at 1400 hours. The project will last no longer than 59 hours longer. Is that clear? The first voice answered. Roger that, sir. When can we expect our in-house scientists to arrive for analysis gathering and briefing? You'll be receiving them tomorrow at 0800 hours, Sergeant. Until then, continue monitoring all exits as well as all radio channels. If anyone approaches, affected or not, you are authorized to use lethal force. Over and out. And with that, the radio died again. I can barely begin to make sense of this. I still feel numb from, you know, I can't bring myself to say it again, what I saw. This is so beyond messed up that it's not funny. We're toys, specimens in some government or group science experiment. People I knew and loved are dead just because someone wanted to test some likely highly illegal stuff out. Just, what the hell, dude? And what the hell are they even making a messed up weapon like this for anyways? What sadistic purpose could something like this possibly have? I don't know. I feel exhausted, mentally and emotionally. I've just been staring at the huge map of town thumbtacked to a board behind the radio for the last half an hour. There are three ways out of town. The main road leading in and out. A dirt access road which leads off to the east that's only used by the power company and off-roaders. And the ski lifts and trails that lead up into the mountains. There's a mark, though, halfway up. It looks like an old mine shaft buried in the side of the mountain. Maybe there's something I can use there, but for now, I can't think anymore. I need to try and sleep. Even though I know I'll suffer nightmares after what I've seen today, I need the rest. I can hear Aubrey shifting in her sleeping bag, already asleep. You guys helped us today. You guys helped us stay alive with the things you said. Please, if you can think of anything more, any advice or information, 
please tell me. Because right now, Aubrey and I really need it. I'll check it in the morning and hopefully update you tomorrow about what happens. We need to try and find a way out of here before we end up like Maurice and the others. Ha <laughs> ha This looks like as good a place as any to break the story for now. No, don't look so cross. There's plenty more where this came from, and we'll hear the second part soon. Until then, what do you think? Where would you go in case of the psychopath apocalypse? This is definitely a new twist on the zombie apocalypse, isn't it? How would you have to modify your zombie apocalypse escape plan? No, oh, I know you have one. No need to be coy. It's a good thing this show is broadcast over the radio waves. That way, even when the horde of angry townsfolk is breaking down your door, I'll still be with you. <laughs> in spirit, but not in the flesh. <laughs> if you enjoyed this story, make sure to tune in for the second part soon. Please check out the author in the links below. Leave a like on this video and subscribe for more stories like this one. Whatever you do, turn off your phone sometimes, huh? And don't fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs>